From reopening NAFTA to America First and musing about implementing tariffs and border taxes, U.S. President Donald Trump has thrown out the rulebook on trade, and with it, everything Canada was accustomed to in dealing with the U.S. Canada's best hope for dealing with changes in the U.S. isn't Ottawa. It is on the ground between provinces and states. In this episode, we're talking province-to-state engagement. This is What the West. What the West. I am your host, Naomi Christensen. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Canada West Foundation. In this episode, we dig into subnational engagement, how the Western provinces cooperate with U.S. states, how it came about, and what we get out of it. Provincial premiers and elected officials have exclusive access to their American counterparts, particularly through organizations like the Western Governors Association, the Council of State Governments, and the Pacific Northwest Economic Region Group. Canadian officials have the ability to fully participate in these forums. That's something that other major trade partners of the U.S., like Japan, China, and even Mexico, don't have. To tell us more about why this matters, I'm joined today by two guests, Jim Eldridge and Jim Horseman, both of whom have been at the forefront of Manitoba and Alberta's engagement with the U.S. Well, to kick things off, I'm joined by Jim Eldridge on the line from Manitoba. Welcome, Jim. Thank you very much. Jim, you've had a long career in the Manitoba government. Uh, You advise most of Manitoba's premiers, I think, over about the last 50 years, particularly on intergovernmental relations. So in the West, we have a strong track record of provincial premiers and U.S. governors cooperating on issues where there's common concern. And I understand that that tradition really got started in Manitoba with Albert and Saskatchewan then following suit and taking on leadership roles. But how did all of that kind of come about? Well, actually, it's important to know that uh, I think all four Western provinces historically had strong attachments to the U.S. and, and other international entities um, for, for a variety of reasons uh, related to their economy. Mm-hmm. And here, um, uh, some of the some of the connectors uh, were the green trade, um, transportation north south. Um, uh, in our case, um, uh, borrowing in, in uh, bond markets in the U.S. and, and uh, Europe and Asia, and also. For a long time, Winnipeg was the sort of entrepot for the West, so we had lots of international connectors with them for, through manufacturing, retail, financial services. We still do. Uh, Saskatchewan, uh, of course, had its its green connectors and some water issues uh, with the U.S. Um, Alberta had principally oil and gas, lots and lots of back and forth as still exists. And, and in B.C., um, all their attachments both to the Pacific Northwest and, and Asia and, and then the Columbia River and their border with Alaska. So um, way before um, Canadian provinces got active in international relations, uh, uh, these, these factors were at play. Um, one of the things that I, I thought was important to know is that um, uh, I would say that the main leadership among the Western provinces in dealing with the U.S. Uh, in the 
in the 1970s came from Alberta, and and it was I think principally because um, Premier Lougheed was very anxious to uh, diversify Alberta's economy, mm-hmm. and uh, the other Western premiers felt the same way, and uh, they were uh, bridling about the the traditional national policies like uh, freight rates and, and tariff policies that worked against um, Western diversification and development. Uh, so um, they were uh, ma- major advocates of um, freer trade with the U.S. And, and Premier Lougheed was probably one of the most effective voices. Uh, into the um, 1980s, uh, Grant Devine had a, a big role in Saskatchewan. He had uh, um, a PhD in agricultural economics from the U.S. and had lots of connections down there, and was was a very important leader. Um, our uh, our governments at the time also were active, uh, but but probably less so. And, and most of the connectors were uh, um, through the national governors and so on. It wasn't until the mid '80s that Manitoba became actively involved. We signed our first. Um, state cooperation agreement with North Dakota in 1985 and uh, later we did one with Minnesota in 88. How we became the the key part of the Western Governors, Western Premier's relationship uh, was was um, <laughs> partly coincidental. In uh, 1990, uh, the chair of the Western Governors was George Sinner from North Dakota Mm-hmm. And the chair of the, the Western Premiers was Gary Filman from Manitoba. And the two of them had worked together before um, 1990. And, and Governor Sinner uh, suggested to Premier Filman, hey, we should take advantage of the fact that we're both uh, respective chairs of our organizations to uh, uh, try getting getting together and, and uh, having uh, each attend the other's meetings. And, in 1990, um, a couple of the Western governors came to a Western Premier's meeting in, in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, and um, the uh, couple of Canadian Premiers, uh, Premier Filman from Manitoba and Premier Devine from Saskatchewan, went to um, the Western Governor's meeting in Fargo, North Dakota, and it was a very successful um, interaction mm-hmm. and led to uh, the tradition of, of Western Premiers being invited to Western Governors meetings annually uh, from that time forward. And Manitoba, uh, because of the special connection with uh, Governor Sinner and, and, and others, um, uh, was probably the most regular attendee um, from that time forward. Uh, both under uh, Premier Filman, uh, who was in, in office until 1999, and then Premier Dewar, who was in office from 99 to 2009, and then Premier Selinger, and and, and now um, Premier Pallister, uh, all of whom um, saw the, the value in the, in the relationship. So uh, that's sort of the history. Manitoba uh, had the sort of institutional leadership on the Western Premier's Western Governor's relationship, but uh, the other the other Western provinces and their premiers were also important leaders uh, um, in their time. Right, and that Western Governors Association connection uh, continues with, of course, last year um, at their annual meeting, they had a session specifically focused on Canada. And I think it might have been you that mentioned once, um, you know, if they're 
if a couple of years go by and the Western governors aren't seeing premiers, they get kind of worried and they, you know, they want to make sure that they're, they're connecting with the premiers. So that's really good. Um, so trade obviously is an area that the premiers and governors have a big mutual interest in. Uh, you touched upon that and it's not surprising that those connections were really made when the Canada-US free trade agreement was being um, negotiated originally. But beyond trade, what are some of the issues or what are some of um, you know the areas that kind of stand out for you in your time with the Manitoba government of ways that Manitoba has cooperated with with the US states and what the province has gotten out of that okay well I, I've, I've got a, a fairly interesting list of, of uh, topics that have, have uh, claimed attention and, and have had some success um, uh, early on back in the in the um, in the early 90s uh, one of the focuses was actually improving north-south um, air service in the west, and, and both uh, mm. uh, the western premiers and the western governors lobbied with our respective national governments, and, and there's been some improvement. I guess it's quite noticeable in, in Calgary, and it's also noticeable at the Calgary airport, and, mm. uh, and certainly um, in Edmonton and, and uh, um, Regina and Winnipeg as well, and, and always has been uh, important in Vancouver. So that was one. Um, there was uh, a lot of discussion, interestingly enough, about the environment, and part of that was because NAFTA was a, NAFTA was under negotiation in the early 90s, and, and we here in Manitoba actually convened the first ever tri-national senior officials uh, meeting on environmental issues, uh, uh, way, way before its time. Um, one of the uh, one of the more more uh, uh, recent and, and very important uh, outcomes uh, that was positive for for both sides of the border was a concentration um, uh, discussion of, of animal health and especially mm. mad cow. Uh, and you, you'll recall the great concerns about uh, the impact on, on um, um, the, the uh, livestock industry yes. in, in Western Canada because of the mad cow concerns. And some of the governors uh, were particularly supportive of our situation, and, and it was it was at least partly because they recognized that that uh, you know our, our we were doing a darn good job of policing, but also uh, there were their economic interests for themselves. But one of the most memorable uh, things in the campaign that the Canadian premiers had going uh, was a, was a big barbecue. Uh, at a Western governor's meeting in um, Colorado. The governor of Colorado then was uh, Bill Owen, and, and uh, he um, he hosted a, a high-profile barbecue with Canadian meat and uh, some Canadian beer uh, <laughs> at his residence in Denver, and, and it was well, well covered. And, and uh, you know, he, he took a big, uh, a big step uh, to support his, his Canadian friends. Uh, another recent one was um, the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, when he was the, uh, the chair of Western Governors, uh, chaired a, an effort to, to do a Western uh, energy strategy project, and he invited the uh, Western premiers each to contribute uh, their own pieces of energy strategy to, uh, uh, to the governors. And so they put out a publication uh, with, with uh, Western energy strategy elements from all the western states and the western provinces which was, uh, was an important statement um another big one that was um, 
led for us by uh, Premier Dewar was uh, a strong a strong work to improve cooperation on uh, uh, emergency management and preparedness, uh, including wildfires and flooding. And uh, there was actually a, a protocol signed uh, as a result of that. And uh, um, it, it, uh, what it what it essentially does is uh, uh, puts both sides in, in uh, regular regular contact when uh, there's wildfire issues and flooding mm-hmm. issues and so on. And they they work with each other and ensure that uh, uh, all the equipment that's available is is allocated where it's needed and, and so forth. And that wasn't the first time that that was done, but it, it made it a lot more regular and it's continued to this day. Um, there, there's been uh, a lot of work on uh, border infrastructure priorities mm-hmm. and, and uh, that's continuing to now as well, you know, so that uh, trying to um, smooth out the border activities and improve the uh, uh, customs facilities and, and the highway connections and so on. It's affected all the uh, all the provinces and border states. And also now uh, there's work going on on uh, higher education and training and, and labor mm-hmm. mobility. Um, there's a, a Western Governors University. It's a virtual university, and it, it, uh, it's quite innovative. And the Western Premiers have been looking at that. And, but a lot of the a lot of the issues um, uh, are common to uh, to both sides. And in fact, uh, something that I was thinking of as I was uh, getting ready for this discussion was how often we heard from the Western Governors. Uh, kind of statements like, hey, uh, to the Western Premiers, uh, right. we seem to have a lot more in common with, with you guys than, than we uh, sometimes do with our, our own Eastern counterparts. And they all laugh because I should say it's true on the Canadian side exactly. as well. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. anyway, that's uh, that's a bit of a summary of some of the, uh, the non-trade stuff that's uh, been helpful. Right. Well, thanks for that. And just turning kind of to more present day, you know, we will often open a newspaper or, or read about trips that our, our premiers or perhaps some of our ministers take down to the states. Um, and with NAFTA especially being renegotiated and with a more protectionist administration in Washington than we've been used to seeing, um, you know, what... You know, for people that just see, oh, our premier's taking another trip, you know, what what is the value that comes from us Canadians being present in the U.S., especially when there are big issues at stake? Well, I think, I think um, actually, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and uh, uh, what we all need to remember is that, is that the uh, that policy-making process in the U.S. and the legislative process doesn't just consist of uh, uh, the national government, it also mm-hmm. consists of uh, the state governments and, and local governments, the same in Canada. Um, and and uh, uh, it, was, it was interesting that, that until the, the mid-80s, uh, our own national government, and I think the State Department in the U.S. were quite jealous of their sort of uh, leadership role in international relations. And, mm-hmm. and, and didn't really want to open it up to other other players, but then there were a few far-sighted people uh, on the Canadian side. Uh, one was Alan Gottlieb, who was the uh, Canadian ambassador in Washington for a long time. Right. He wrote a book saying, "Look, uh, there's so much to do to advance Canada's interests in the U.S. that we, we we there's plenty of work for everybody, and it's really critical 
not only that the federal government gets involved in, in the parliament, but also the uh, the provinces, the premiers, uh, provincial legislators, uh, and, and business and, and local government as well. And there's there's so much to be done as long as they're more or less reading from the same page in the uh, in the strategy book. Uh, it can be extremely valuable, and, and uh, that that same message was bought by the. Um,
governors who go on to become U.S. senators and oftentimes members of the federal cabinet. And when you have a personal relationship with these individuals, it can be incredibly beneficial to your your region or, or your own your own province and at any given time um, you look at the federal US federal cabinet there's usually three or four uh, former governors in there right now uh, for example the the ag secretary Sonny Perdue mm-hmm. used to be the governor of um, uh, Georgia uh, Rick Perry the energy secretary used to be governor of Texas knows many of our our premiers uh, I think there's a there's a third who I can't think of at the moment uh, but but in past times uh, Janet Napolitano was the uh, national security person and, and she knew Western Canada very well from being a, a Western governor and, and most of the agriculture secretaries over time have been uh, have been Western governors several key senators are former governors and on and on and in fact um, uh, a couple of the recent presidents uh, were governors. Bill Clinton was was one, and he actually chaired the National Governors uh, Canada Relations Committee. Oh. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, and he was at a, a major meeting in Boise, Idaho in 1985 with some of the Canadian premiers, and, and uh, I think probably uh, Mr. Horseman will have some history on that, that I, I probably goes well beyond what I know. But, um, uh, and then George Bush, of course, uh, yes. was governor of Texas before he became president, uh, George W. Bush. So, yeah. anyway. And we actually, uh, yeah, we actually looked to see how many, um, how many presidential cabinet roles have gone to people who are in state governments. As we look back to Reagan through to Trump, so 1981 to today, yeah. there was about 30 um 30, you know, people holding cabinet secretary roles that were previously in state governments, and most of those were governors, so. Yeah. Well, one, one good example, if you, have, if you have time, was during the Mad Cow process, um, the U.S. Agriculture Secretary was Mike Johans, who used to be a, um, a governor in the Western Governors Association, and several of the Western premiers knew him. And, and um, so there, were, there was lots of lobbying going on by, by Canada, uh, but some of our premiers had direct personal relations, so we're able to get a lot of personal time with the U.S. Ag Secretary, kind of on the QT, below the mm-hmm. radar, uh, but, but they, they had their chance to make their case to the most important U.S. official in the process because they had known and built a personal relationship with him. And, and, and how do you put a price on that? You can't, you know. That's right. Right. Well, we need to wrap it up quickly here, but I also just wanted to mention that uh, the Council of State Governments, I believe, they're having their next meeting in Winnipeg in July. So yeah. that's great for, you know, your province. Not only are, are, you know, our government people going down to the U.S., but they're also coming up here. So that's, I imagine, quite valuable. Very much so, and, and it, it's important to remember that in the U.S., um, because they have a separation of powers, uh, the governors are the head of the executive branch, but the legislators uh, are extremely important as well, and a lot of them have a lot of experience. In our case, what we're hosting is the, the Midwestern Division of the Council of State Governments, uh, middle of July, and it's a, it's a big event. There's, there's 500 uh, U.S. visitors coming, including family oh, wow. members. Yeah. They, they, it's sort of a combination of uh, 
policy and 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 also family time and and uh, uh, very very diverse agenda. And we've been a, a, a major participant in this organization for a long time. And, and they they publish uh, resolutions at uh, from year to year, and oftentimes have been supportive of, of Canada's positions on. Um, energy issues, border issues, etc. They've got a very diverse agenda, so it's a it's a worthwhile relationship. And, and of course, it, it doesn't hurt to uh, have a few people in town during tourist season as well. That's right. Well, we wish you good luck with that meeting, and uh, we have to wrap it up. But I just wanted to thank you again for taking time to share, you know, some of your experiences in this area with us and with our listeners. Well, very very. Very nice of you to, to ask, and I'm sorry for being so long-winded, but I hope some of it at least is helpful. Oh, definitely. Well, I'm really pleased to be joined now by Jim Horseman. Jim was an Alberta MLA from 1975 to 1993, holding several cabinet roles, including Minister of Federal and Intergovernmental Affairs from 1982 to 1992. So welcome to our podcast, Jim. Thank you. So Jim, from what I've heard, Premier Lougheed was really a strong believer in the value of relationships uh, with the U.S., which was something his successor, Premier Getty, carried on. And you were the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, I believe, under both those premiers. And I also believe that that engaging with U.S. states wasn't really something that many uh, other provinces were doing at that time. So what did that early engagement kind of look like for Alberta? How did it come about? And how do you think that it impacted the province? Well, I think it is an important uh, element because the state's governments, of course, have responsibilities which in large measure correspond with the responsibilities that the provinces have. And uh, in particular, uh, issues that uh, were of concern to us as a government under Peter Lougheed and uh, Don Getty were uh, issues relating to our trading relationships Mm -hmm. with the United States. And... uh, that uh, led to a lot of very interesting times uh, after uh, uh, the uh, Mulroney government came into place in Canada and, and the, the start of discussions on free trade with the U.S. Uh, really um, bloomed or blossomed mm-hmm. uh, during that period of time, particularly after 1984. And that was an, an opportunity for us to engage state governments as well in, in uh, their understanding of what the importance of uh, our, our trading relationship. Right. And, I mean, it's kind of a retrospective question, but do you think that we would have had success in getting a trade deal with the U.S. if there wasn't so much engagement by the provinces with their state counterparts on the issue? Well, that was it was an element, mm-hmm. but the provinces had a bigger role to play in the negotiation process of the free trade agreement than the state governments had uh, in terms of uh, how they impacted on the um, policies that eventually um, brought about the agreement back in 1987. Right. Right. So it was important for us to be on good terms, but at the same time, the provinces, uh, because of their ownership of natural resources, 
ocean mm-hmm. management and the control of natural resources had a much greater role to play in the negotiation process. But it was important not to have opposition from the states. Mm-hmm. And I think we worked very hard on that through a number of um, um, methods to uh, engage our uh, state counterparts. Right. And just on the topic of the free trade between Canada and the U.S., um, we've heard from a couple of people that it w- that Premier Lougheed was really one of the driving forces behind free trade uh, with the U.S. Well, there's no question about that. And uh, that certainly came to a head at the February uh, 1985 meeting, a first minister's meeting held in Regina. And uh, Lougheed had put it on the agenda uh, Mulroney listened, took it up, the other provinces came on side, and the process began to uh, evolve in, into the most consultative process uh, on, on, on any trade issue between Canada and the U.S. that had ever existed. Right, yeah, and that's really interesting that that leadership came uh, from Alberta, I think that's something a lot of people don't know, but in a very important part of our history. That's right. As a matter of fact, I was just reviewing, and uh, one article was entitled "Peter Law had the Forgotten uh, mm. Leader on Free Trade yeah. and Negotiations," but it certainly was a, a key element, and he definitely took the leadership role. And I was there uh, as his uh, Minister of Federal Intergovernmental Affairs, and it was my responsibility subsequently to head up the cabinet committee on international trade negotiations which was was very involved in in the discussions with the uh, federal leadership under Simon Reisman and the other provinces and their trade negotiators okay interesting and I imagine there was probably a little bit of pushback from Ottawa and having the provinces so involved in the negotiations they weren't exactly welcoming the process with open arms, but in the end, because it worked effectively, I think that they did agree that the process, uh, while unusual, and uh, had uh, in fact been instrumental in achieving the uh, Canadian position, which was then subsequently agreed to by the U.S. Right. And so now here we are in 2018, and NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which includes Mexico as well, has been uh, under renegotiation for about nine months now, I think. And, you know, we've seen some trips by Western premiers, um, both to Washington, D.C., as well as to states that are our major uh, trading partners to champion keeping NAFTA, um, modernizing it, but keeping it. So... If you, you know, if you're an American governor or a senator or you sit in Congress, um, kind of what's your reaction when you have these Canadian heads of government, premiers, coming to talk to you about issues on NAFTA? Does it sway thinking in the U.S. or just give them better, a better understanding of Canada's side of things or how does that kind of work? Well, I think it's extremely important that... First comment that I believe that the federal government in this process that's now underway has engaged the provinces in terms of uh, uh, 
determining the negotiating position on behalf of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I think that that reflected on what took place back in the in the 80s, leading to the 88 uh, uh, agreement, which uh, it, it was the was not NAFTA, but subsequently became NAFTA, mm -hmm. and I think that the uh, the desire on the part of the of the federal government to make sure that the provinces are on side in these negotiations is a very important element, and uh, I, I think that it's it, it's been working in during the course of this negotiation in terms of developing. The Canadian negotiating position. I'm not commenting on whether or not they will succeed. Right. I, hope they do. But <laughs> I don't think anybody wants I, to comment on that. But <laughs> well, it, it's it, you know these are very complicated issues, and they affect yeah. the lives and the prosperity of uh, people on both sides of the border. So I think it's. Uh, I'm hopeful that they they will come to a, a comprehensive agreement and that it will continue to benefit the three countries who are directly involved. Yes, exactly. And just going back to your comment about uh, the federal government this time around also, you know, getting input from provinces and, and using them to help uh, to help our position in, in the U.S., I think that uh, this is maybe one of the only areas that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier, uh, former Premier Brad Wall agreed on things because um, I know Tr Trudeau sent him on a couple of trade missions down to the U.S., particularly in states where agriculture is big. Um, so that was interesting to see. It, it seems to be an issue that kind of crosses partisan lines. Or, or Yeah, I think it is important to, from a Canadian perspective that we show united face to our counterparts in the U.S. and I think a lot of people in the perhaps in the national news media on both sides of the border tend to uh, or fail to appreciate the importance of our relationships that the provinces and states have border to border mm -hmm. and there are a number of organizations including the the uh, Pacific Northwest Economic Region yeah which uh, of which I'm a, actually a co-founder. Oh, cool. uh, uh, it, It's another example of how provinces and states can work together to uh, ease uh, uh, barriers which are placed between uh, our two our parties and uh, smooth things out and get to know each other. The Energy Council, another example that mm -hmm. Alberta belongs to. Uh, where when we joined it, uh, there were real concerns on part of a number of U.S. oil and gas producing states that Canadian provinces were somehow or the other doing things improperly mm. in the North American energy market. Once we joined that organization, those fears and uh, misunderstandings faded away, and now mm. we're having a, a, another example of, uh, there's a meeting of the Energy Council uh, in Canada now, uh, every other year, and uh, and the same thing with the North American or with the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, which is meeting in Saskatchewan next next month. So, you know, these are important um, cross-border 
cross-border, let me put it, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, initiatives yes. that are not necessarily recognized uh, by national media attention. Right, yeah, but doing a lot of good work kind of under the radar, so definitely good to be a part of them. And sometimes it's just as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, so besides, you know, achieving free trade with the U.S., which was obviously a huge accomplishment, uh, is there anything else that kind of stands out from your time as Alberta's Intergovernmental Affairs Minister in terms of things that the province achieved um, through a direct result of working with the U.S. on issues? Well, this is a very small thing, uh, but we have a Montana-Alberta Boundary Advisory uh, a group, a committee, mm-hmm. which I chaired with the governor of Montana, and together we agreed to jointly build a vehicle inspection facility at Coots, Alberta, ah. which is manned yeah. by both uh, Canadian and U.S. Uh, inspectors and, and, and jointly funded. Now, it's an example, I think, of what can be done in other parts of Canada right. and the U.S. It's a small thing. But nonetheless, it was an example of the type of cooperation that we can achieve uh, state government to Alberta or provincial government uh, working directly with each other. And there are, on uh, in eastern Canada, there are the governors uh, meet with the premiers of the eastern, eastern provinces and, and states. And, and I think those types of things are, are have got to be good for our, our long-standing relationship with our neighbor. Mm-hmm. So was there a border crossing at Coots before you got that going, or that's what? Oh, yeah, so that's, it's a border crossing. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that's only one small thing. Right, yeah, no. Uh, uh, that type of cooperation and, and good relationship is important. Definitely. Great. Well, I think we have to wrap up in the interest of time here, but I just want to thank you again, Jim, for taking time to join us and uh, talking to us and our listeners about your experiences kind of on the front lines of this as Alberta's Intergovernmental Affairs Minister at what was a very interesting time. Well, thank you. I did a lot of work and and I've spoken numerous times to various audiences in the U.S. during the free trade negotiation time and uh, gained the attention of a lot of people uh, for our interest. And uh, and then we took a very active role uh, in supporting the federal government in the election of 1980, which was pivotal in terms of getting the agreement agreed to by the Canadian Parliament. Yes, well, we thank you for that. Well, thank you for your interest. Great. Thanks again. Thanks again to today's guests, the two gyms, for sharing their insights from their experience on the front lines of Western provincial engagement with the U.S. What the West is a Canada West Foundation production. Today's episode was hosted by me, Naomi Christensen, and produced by Jamie Graydon. To keep up with What the West, subscribe on your favorite podcast app or find it on our website. Thanks for tuning in.